Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered them, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for who you are, and thank you for blessing us with another day of life, another day to worship you. I pray that today you would uh, speak through Kevin, and that we'll be submissive to what you have to tell us, and be submissive to your word today and throughout the week as we uh, go out and uh, live in Gainesville. In your name, amen. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. Got somebody getting the lights there. It'll be good. It's a little dark in here. So, uh, happy Palm Sunday, everybody. Thanks for, thanks for being at Aletheia. My name's Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Appreciate you guys being here this morning. Um, so I was going to kind of start one way this morning, but I want to take a second because someone stopped me out in the lobby before we started and just kind of let me know about something that happened internationally this morning that I was not aware of. Um, this morning in Egypt, um, Palm Sunday, uh, some, some churches in Egypt were holding service and uh, they were, uh, two different churches were victims of a bombing. Uh, they, there's at least 36 uh, brothers and sisters uh, that were killed uh, in these attacks. Um, they, they've, they're not sure on the exact numbers of how many are going to end up not making it. But if we could just spend a moment, just bow your head. If you're, if you're a Christian this morning, I would love for you to pray for, pray for them. Um, we're just going to pray for everyone involved there this morning. So thank you guys for being here. Like I said, it, it's Palm Sunday, so I, I know like from, from the, the, the religious calendar, it's an important time. It's the, the Sunday we celebrate Jesus being invited into Jerusalem as a king and knowing just a few days later he would be um, betrayed uh, and murdered. Um, and so, you know, as we've kind of been trying to prepare for Easter last week and this week and then obviously next week, um, one of the things that we're, we're doing is, is we're kind of trying to take a glance at a, a different uh, person within the gospel narratives and try to understand maybe what they were experiencing as they were a part of Jesus's ministry and then ultimately what they would have experienced during uh, the Passion Week, which is this week, and then Christ's subsequent death, burial, and resurrection. And last week we talked about Mary, the mother of Jesus, and, and what, would it have, what would it have been like for her to both you know, have been told that she was going to be carrying the promised Messiah in her womb for nine months and then, you know, sit underneath the own teaching of her son knowing that one day she would, you know, kind of stand before the cross as she watched her own son be crucified. And so we would kind of work through that. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to kind of check out the, the podcast. But this week we're going to look at Peter. And before we, before we dive too much into the text this morning, one of the things I find fascinating about human beings just in general is that we differ from every other species on this planet. And one of the, one of the ways that is, is, is in the way that, that you and I as humans process and review information. Now, bear with me for a second, right? Animals, right? Especially, how many of you guys are animal lovers or owners in here this morning? Okay, a good majority of the room, right? Um, the rest of you guys have had a puppy before and you're done with it. You know, like my wife and I, we had a puppy our, our second year of marriage and we learned our lesson and we'll never own a dog again. More, more than likely. Love dogs, but love for you to have a dog so I could play with your dog. Not going to have a dog myself ever again. And so, but animals, they run on instinct, okay? Like one thing that Jackie and I noticed very quickly is that our little puppy Jack, where the, the rescue shelter lied to us and told us that he was going to be a max of 30 pounds and he was 80 by the time he finished growing, right? That one of the things we noticed really quickly with him is that he didn't listen to anybody unless 
you fed him. He, and see, he ran on instinct. He, he knew that if I listen to them, maybe I'll get what I desire more than anything in this planet, which is either food or a dirty paper towel. Those are the two things he wanted more than anything in the world, right? And so animals, they run on instinct. They, they forage, they hunt, um, they, they, they reproduce for the continuation of the species, and they make decisions solely based on survival and instinct and things that are going get, to get them through life. Now, human beings are different, all right? Because you and I are made in the image and likeness of God, we are different in the way that we operate. Okay, now, to some extent, as a human being, you and I will operate on instinct in some ways. We'll make decisions, you know, fight or flight. Those types of decisions are often instinctual. But what differentiates us from, the, from other species and animals on this planet is our ability to review decisions and choices we make and then logically think through whether they were the right decision, and then more importantly, whether it was morally okay to have made the decision that we made. Right? We might make a decision based on practicality, we might make a decision based on desire, or we might make a decision on whether we decide one outcome will be good or evil. And humans at their core are problem solvers. Right? The survival of the race has been because of this. You know, we, we, we gather in cities. We've, we've created farming communities. These are things we've done as human beings. But being made in the image of God has also given us the ability to lead, rule, and worship. Which is different than my dog Jack. My dog Jack didn't, you know, some of you guys, and I love you dog lovers, especially like, everybody know what I mean when I say dog lovers? I don't mean somebody who likes dogs. I mean like they're, they're crazy. They think their dog talks to them. Like, oh, you know, my dog just loves me. Okay, dog lover, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rain on your parade here for a second. Okay. I'm sorry. There's a few people in the room that are like, I don't like this guy already. Okay. Uh, my dog Duke just loved me, right? Like he, he was great. Okay, I went away for my freshman year of college. I was gone three weeks. Duke did not care about me at all when I got back. You want to know why? Because I stopped feeding him in the morning and in the evening, and my dad did it. And guess who Duke loved <laughs> after I went away to college? He loved my dad <laughs> because my dad fed him. Right? My, so, so animals tend to run off of instinct and survival, whereas you and I, if you go away for a couple weeks and then return back home, mom and dad still love you. They're excited to see you. Your, your roommates, if you get along, are excited to see you. If you go away for a weekend and get back, your kids are excited to see you because human beings operate in a different plane. And because of this, human beings over the course of the last couple millennium have done some interesting things and have had some interesting kind of every culture and civilization has had some things in common. Uh, more, more so than the desire for survival and convenience, they've also typically tried to answer this question. Why are we here and where do we come from? Now, no matter what cultural background you come from, where you stand on the scale of belief in God or God's, where you stand as far as just your, your spirituality, human beings have been trying to answer that question really all the way back to oral history of the human race. And every culture has had some sort of answer to that question, whether it's atheistic in nature, meaning they don't believe that a God exists, whether it's agnostic in nature, meaning we think there's something out there, but we're not really sure what it is, or whether the culture is more theistic, right? And even if a culture is theistic, there's various breakdowns of that, right? There's, there's cultures that are monotheistic, like the Jewish culture or um, the, the Arabic culture, or there's polytheistic cultures like those of a Hindu background, that there are those that hold it to a panentheistic or pantheistic view of, of life, whereas they believe God is in nature and what's going on. There's all these different views of what's going on. But either way, hum, the human species has been trying to kind of answer this question of why, why are we here? Where, where did this start from? What is going on? And so today's text answers that question. It answers it in, in many ways, and it even corrects the common Jewish misconceptions in a lot of ways of who God is and what his Messiah was going to do. And in the midst of that story, there's this guy, Peter. 
who was a disciple of Jesus, and oftentimes in Scripture, Peter kind of gets this rap of being this really, you know, guy who loves the Lord a lot, and he also gets a rap for being a world-class moron oftentimes throughout Scripture. And so in today's text, Peter's going to be answering the question of what Jesus is doing in Israel at this particular time. And he's going to get the answer right, and then he's going to immediately screw it up afterwards in the text that I'm going to show you. But what, one thing I want us to notice as we're kind of looking at the text this morning, and this is something I tried to point out last week. The point of kind of looking at these different historical characters in the gospel narratives is not to get excited about Peter or last week Mary, but to get excited about the God that they're worshiping. Right? The most important thing we saw last week as we were kind of studying Mary is that in her song, she wasn't elevating herself to the point of deity, which has happened really in, in many cultures and within, within the church in some ways. But Mary was worshiping God and turning the attention towards him. And we're going to see from Peter is the same thing. So go with me to Matthew chapter 16 and let's start un- unpacking this text uh, that Zach read to us earlier. Verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? All right, so Caesarea Philippi is a city about 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Um, It was once named Peneus. It was this kind of this, as far as like in in this particular section of the Holy Land, was kind of known for... um, the famous worship of two different deities. One was this god named Baal, which was a, 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 an idol that was worshipped in the Old Testament uh, by the Assyrians. And so the, it kind of, this was known as the epicenter of where the worship of Baal often happened. Now, once the Greeks moved in and Alexander the Great conquered, conquered this particular region of the Mediterranean, uh, they kind of shifted and they started worshipping this Greek god called Pan. Um, and basically, he was kind of like the god of shepherds and flocks. So you, you guys remember a couple weeks ago that I explained to you that when Paul was talking to the Galatians and told them that they used to worship the elementary principles of the world, I explained that the gods that the Greeks and the Romans worshipped all had to be appeased in some way to be able to perform. And you often picked a god that was the god of your particular trade or what you were involved in. And so this particular region was known for shepherding. And so the Greek god that they kind of adopted was this god Pan, who was the the god of flocks. And he would, you know, make sure that there was plenty of pasture and graze for the flocks there. And so ultimately, though, by this point in time, not only are they worshiping the, the Greek god Pan, but they're also worshiping Caesar because once the, the Romans had taken over and established control of the province, Caesar made sure that he was someone to be worshipped as a deity. That was one of the ways that they controlled um, the conquered parts of the Roman kingdom. And so Philip, the son of Herod, had changed the name to honor the Caesar and himself, and that's why the, the city's named this way. And so it's a, it's a city of heavy, heavy pagan influence that Jesus is in at the moment, and yet Jesus is continuing to do ministry there amongst the Gentiles to talk to them about why he's there. And this is really interesting, right, because the Jews kind of had this opinion and this view of the Messiah as as being for the Jews only. And so the very fact that Jesus is in this city would have definitely raised some questions to his disciples. They'd have been like, why are we we going to the city? Shouldn't we be in Jerusalem all the time? Shouldn't we be in in the southern kingdom in Judah spreading the good news that the Messiah is here and what's going on so that we can kick Rome out of this land and you can reestablish Israel as a kingdom again? And so they would have been kind of confused about why they were there. And while in Philippi, right, Matthew records this question that Jesus asks to his disciples. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Um, I want to turn back to Daniel chapter 7 real quick and share with you. This is a, Jesus does this a lot. He uses terminology to describe the, uh, the Messiah. And he uses language that people typically don't expect in the Old Testament for that description. Now in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has had this vision given to him of what the future Messiah is going to be. And look at what he says, uh, starting in verse 13 of Daniel chapter 7. He says, "In I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So there's, there's this guy coming before the Ancient of Days. That's another word for God or Yahweh. That this, this, this son of man has been presented before God in this vision that he's seen. 
And to him, that's the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel has this vision while Israel is in captivity— and he is under Babylonian rule of a future king who's going to rule multiple cultures, multiple people groups. He's going to establish the kingdom, and it's going to reign forever. Okay? Not, not really something we're looking for from a political perspective, because that's pretty much practically impossible from a political perspective. Okay, so this king is going to establish rule. And so Jesus, therefore, is saying to the disciples, hey, the Son of Man, the Messiah, Daniel chapter 7, you know, you guys are good, good Jewish boys. You know, what, what do you guys think the Son of Man is going to look like? What do people say about him? Who do they say that he is? What is the vision for him? And notice how he doesn't ask them their opinion of him yet. He says, I want to know what the people are saying and what they're looking for in the Messiah. He's like, I want to know what Israel is saying about this person that God has promised to them. And, and, and this is where I want to pause for a second and, and cause you, if you are a follower and a proclaiming, professing believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I want you to pause and think about this for a second because this is an important thing to kind of learn about evangelism here. I've seen a lot of people want to share their faith and talk about what God is doing in their life, but they have an agenda and a script before they ever go into the conversation. And what typically ends up happening in those situations is you're answering a bunch of questions, but you're not answering the questions that that person has. Right? One of the things that's interesting is Jesus is going to be able to teach his disciples how to talk about him as the Messiah because he knows what they're looking for. Right? He's asking this question, hey, who, who are the people saying the Messiah is going to be? What are they looking for? What do they want to see? And he wants to know that because the things that they're looking for, whether they're right or they're wrong, are the things and the questions that, they, that he has to address. Right? I remember one time I was on campus up in Virginia. I was a relatively new believer. And, and when, I, when I first came to faith, part of my journey was, was reading a lot and studying a lot because I was kind of like confused about the logical consistencies within the Bible and within the faith. And so I read a lot of different apologetic books early on. And so I was talking to this guy, and I spent about 35 minutes with him just sharing him all these different apologetics. And then like towards the end, I'm so like, so I'm like, so what do you think about all this? And he's like, well, that's interesting, but that's not my question. I, I don't really, I, I, like I'm not really concerned about the validity of the Bible. I, I, I'm wondering about why you chose and how, and how, and how, how, how the, the God of the Bible has affected you personally. So I spent 35 minutes with this guy. He should have interrupted me, by the way. I've been like, dude, I don't care about any of this. But he was polite, and so he let me keep running my mouth. But I wasn't answering his heart questions. He wanted to know, hey, how does the God of the Bible, how is he going to personally affect me? How has he personally affected you? He didn't care that I knew that there were over 10,000 manuscripts at the time, and now some 20,000 manuscripts of the Bible that we've recovered. It's the most well-attested to book in ancient antiquity. He didn't care about any of that. He wanted to know what's the practical side of this. And so Jesus is sharing this. He's like, look, in order to be able to engage the culture around you, right, who are people saying the Son of Man is going to be? What are they looking for? Because they're looking for me, but you need to be able to find a way to be able to relate what's going on and be able to address their issues, and if necessary, correct them. So, who do they say the Son of Man is? And here's what the disciples respond with, right? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And so according to the Son of Man, according to the, the disciples, what Israel was looking for is a great prophet. Looking for a, a man that's like Elijah, like John the Baptist, like Jeremiah. And, and no matter which prophet he is, you know, some translations will tell you, or some uh, particular, uh, the translation in Luke of, of the, the gospel narrative will tell you that, that they, they were looking for maybe a resurrected prophet. But whatever it was, they were looking for someone who spoke with the authority of God who was going to help establish rule. That's what they were looking for. They were looking for this prophet. So they were looking for somebody that speaks for God, that will point Israel back to God and lead them to victory from a military perspective. 
And Jesus doesn't correct this. He doesn't say, well, they're looking for the wrong thing. Because the reality is, is Jesus is a prophet. Here's one of the fascinating things about Jesus, though. And this is where people miss and, and misunderstand about Jesus' role and authority, both within the Jewish picture, but in your and I's lives as well. Okay. In the Old Testament, God set up for the nation of Israel three offices. Prophet, priest, and king. Okay? Prophets were given the word of God to be able to boldly proclaim what God wanted for his people, how they were supposed to respond to him, what they were supposed to be doing. Um, They would tell the nation of Israel to repent if they weren't walking with the Lord. These are the types of things that prophets would do. And then sometimes, right, they would give future visions of things God was predicting and, and declaring were going to happen in the future. Okay? The other office that they set up, which was under the, the, the family of Levi, which was the Levites, was the priesthood. And the role of the priests were to intervene or be an intermediary between the nation of Israel and the holy presence of God. And so what the priests would do would offer atoning sacrifices. Uh, they would make Israel right ceremonially before the Lord. And they would operate in the tabernacle or the temple. And then the kings obviously took care of the day-to-day rule of the nation and were supposed to be leading the nation in such a way that they would honor and love God. Those were the three offices that God had kind of established for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus gets to this point, he says, what are they looking for in the Son of Man? And you would think from reading Daniel chapter 7, they would have at least been looking for a king. He says what they're looking for is a prophet. They're looking for this guy who's going to be a prophet to them. And Jesus doesn't correct them because he is a prophet. He speaks the truth in the word of God. He teaches. He he corrects the religious leaders and he proclaims what's supposed to go on. But he's so much more than that. He's going to fulfill the duties of the office of prophet, priest, and king with his life. Which is why... He turns to his disciples and says, well, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And this is where Peter comes into the story, right? I told you we were going to get to him. Right, verse 16, Simon Peter replies, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, that word Christ, it's a Greek word. It's from the Hebrew word for Messiah, meaning anointed one. Okay, and so by using that terminology, right, they were saying uh, someone who was anointed was chosen by God for a particular job or purpose. Okay, so by using that term, here's what Peter's saying. I know that you are God's chosen one promised to us and that you're more than a prophet. And then look at that second term that he uses there. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, he's harping back on language there from Psalm chapter 2. And if you're familiar with Psalm chapter 2, we're not going to go through it right now. But Psalm chapter 2 basically talks about the nations rising against God and being against his will and what he desires for the world. And at the end, right, there's this promise that God is going to send somebody and that the nations are going to bow down to him and know him. And then it says towards the very end of Psalm chapter 2 that the Son will be the one who is established and that they should be careful to do the will of the Son. And so what Peter's saying here is like, I I know that you are that promised Son that's talked about in Psalm chapter 2, that all authority and dominion has been given to you by God. That was the promise of the Son of Man. And so Peter is communicating here. We know that you're more than a prophet. We know that you're the Messiah, the promised King and ruler and Savior of Israel. But we also know that you're the son of the living God. You are God's son and all authority has been given to you. Now, if Jesus is just a prophet, if there is ever a moment as a Jewish teacher or prophet where he's going to stop and correct somebody and tell them that they're wrong, when's it going to be? Right then. Right? That, that if basically what Peter is saying is, I know you're the Messiah, I know you're the promised one of God, and I know that you're God's son. I know all of this to be true about you. I've I've read the Old Testament, I know this to be true of you. So if Jesus is not God's son, but is a good Jewish prophet, what is he going to do at this point? 
he's going to stop Peter and correct him. Right? If you guys know anything about Jewish culture, Jews were so careful about not committing blasphemy. They were constantly worried about using God's name in vain, accidentally being accused of doing such, where they wouldn't actually even say God's full name. And so to be called the son of the living God, which would therefore make you God, would be blasphemy if you weren't really God's son. And so Jesus would have corrected him immediately if that were the case. Now, if you need an example of that, and you're thinking, Kevin's just making that up, he's pulling it out. If you read in the book of Acts, when Paul is going around planting churches, he, he comes to this city and he plants a church, and the people of the city start worshiping him because he, commits, he, he, he performs a miracle in front of them. And he performs this miracle, and the people are like, we're going to worship you, Paul. Like, you're here. Like, you, you clearly are special. You're clearly a god. We're going to start worshiping you. And what does Paul do? Shuts it down. He's like, whoa, 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 no, no, no. This is not me. This is not, this is not my own power. This is God's power. I'm just simply God's messenger here to tell you about Jesus. I'm here to tell you about the one that actually gives me the power to do this. Don't worship me. Stop immediately. And he corrects them and points them in the right direction. Jesus, however, responds to Peter in a completely different way. Look at what he says. And he answered Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So instead of stopping Peter and correcting him, what does he do? He calls him blessed. It's like, this is, this is amazing, Peter. You actually, get, you actually get who I am. You've been walking around with me, doing ministry now for months upon months, and you finally understand you finally get why I'm here and what I'm supposed to be doing. You finally fully grasp and understand it. And he makes a really interesting distinction here, right? Look at the language. He says, he says to Peter, he calls him Sina bar Jonah, which means Simon, son of Jonah. So he's like, hey, look, your dad, Jonah, here's what's amazing, Peter. Your dad, Jonah, he didn't tell you any of this, though. He didn't tell you about who I am. He didn't reveal any of this to you. The one who revealed this to you is who? My Father who is in heaven. And this is why I love the scripture so much, guys. This is like one of those moments where you're like reading the scripture and it's just like plain as day, God's love for us. It like could not be more clear, right? Like God, Jesus asks this question to the disciples. Peter answers and, and fully says, yes, I, I, I believe in who you are, Jesus. I trust you. I'm putting my faith and my trust in you. And Jesus immediately says, okay, now, Peter, I know that you got a problem with pride, right? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remind you of why you're able to know this truth in the first place. It's because my Father in heaven has revealed it to you. Trust him. Now, I know that what we've just talked about right there and shared with you, some of you guys are a little antsy. Right? You're like, wait a minute, like... What about free will, and where's God's role in all this, and what do I do? And maybe you're dancing like me right now, you know? I don't know why I'm doing that. I can't stop moving. I have ADHD. Sorry. So here's, here's a proper way to kind of try to understand God's sovereignty on all this and try to understand what's going on. Okay, first and foremost, right, Jesus makes it abundantly clear. How does Peter come to know the truth about who Jesus is? It's open book. The Heavenly Father, right? The Heavenly Father has revealed it to him. Okay, so I would start with this. That shouldn't cause angst in you. Right? What it should cause in you is this, this understanding of if you in here are a believer this morning and you see the scriptures declaring to you that not only God loves you because he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, but that he loves you enough to have revealed to you God's love through his son, Here's something that's abundantly true of you. As random 
and unspecial as you might feel in this world at times, the creator of the universe chose to reveal himself to you. He chose to reveal to you the truth of who he is and what his son has done for you. That shouldn't be something that gives you angst. That should cause you to worship. That what, that what scripture teaches you is that God chose you. That he picked you out and said, I choose you. Now, inevitably, this is the pushback and the question that I get. Well, what about those that don't know? Why hasn't it been revealed? Okay. We just read it. It's been revealed. Right, look, look at it right there in the word. It's been fully explained and revealed right there in the Word. And so I love people all the time, especially like people that don't believe tend to push back on me more when we read these types of things. Right? I, I would just submit this to you too. Most people that have angst with the sovereignty of God, I didn't expect to get into this, but we need, I, I, I'm just kind of getting the sense that we need to share this for a second. People that have angst against the sovereignty of God, let me remind you of two things. Typically, when you have angst against the sovereignty of God, here's how you typically respond. Oh, that takes away my ability to, to be in control. Okay, a proper biblical understanding of the world is this. And really, in reality, scientifically the same, you don't have as much control as you think you do anyway. There are certain privileges, there are certain things and blessings that you've been given growing up where you've grown up with the family that you've grown up in you're not as much in control as you think you are though that the biggest lie we kind of tell ourselves over and over again is that we are in control of everything I, somebody came up to me a couple weeks ago and goes like kevin how do you how do you reconcile free will with the sovereignty of god and i was like well i think it has to do with desires and what our desires are and what's what's going on with our desires like well what do you mean by that like do you like does god take away our desires no okay what I'm saying is, is that none of you guys in this room are as free as you think you are, all right? How many of you guys are going to go out to a restaurant after, after you are, are done here this morning and I finally quit talking and you probably can't wait for that to happen? Okay, so one, Brent. Brent is the only person that's going to eat lunch afterwards. Thank you, Brent. All right, so let's use Brent as an example. The rest of you guys don't eat, apparently, okay? All right, so if you go out to a restaurant, the first thing you notice when you go into a restaurant is this menu of like 35 things that you can choose from. All right, now... Most of you guys have been lied to by the Greeks and Western thought thinking you're completely free to make whatever decision you want while you're in there. I'm here to tell you, philosophically speaking, you are not. Okay? I guarantee you that whatever item you pick off that menu, you are going to pick based on the strongest desire you have at any given moment. So some of you guys are like, I'm going to get a salad. Okay? Great decision. If, you're, you know, if you want to be healthy, your deepest desire is to be healthy. This deep, the deepest desire you have at that moment that's driving your decision making is to want to be healthy. And so you want to eat something healthy, right? And so instead of choosing the fried Oreo or whatever it is on that menu, you're like, yeah, I'm going to get, the, I'm gonna get the, the garden chicken salad with a vinaigrette dressing, right? Or if you're like my family, they get a, a lot of ranch with a little bit of lettuce. I'm like, you have completely ruined the point of a salad, but go for it, mom, Okay. So, so the deepest desire is to be healthy. Now, some people walk in there and they're like me and they go to Taco Bell. <laughs> that always gets different responses. There's never like, oh, okay. Like it's either like, oh, or everyone else is like, yes. So you go into Taco Bell and you're like, I may have a heart attack before I leave this place, but it is going to taste fantastic. Right, that, my deepest desire is to taste something delicious. I've got maybe 60 years here. I want to enjoy all 60 years of them. If you get an extra five because you ate the salad, congratulations. <laughs> but you ate salads. Right? And what drove me to go to Taco Bell was my desire for what I wanted to eat. Right? And so you say, wow, that's, that's kind of free will. Okay, well, let's fit that into the picture then of what God says about sovereignty and how he reveals himself to us and what's going on. The Bible uses language of saying that God changes your desires and your affections towards him. And so biblically, right, from the understanding of how our desires and works, your desires and affections before you know who God is and he has been revealed to you as he's talking about here to Peter— so you have desires, but your desires are centered around you and thinking that you're the center of the universe. 
and that God changes and reveals himself and the desire that you see, you now see God as more desirable than what you desired before. The same way that now, after I've lost 30 pounds, I desire that salad a little bit more than the Taco Bell beforehand. Right? Because something has changed and my, my deepest desires have changed because I have young kids, I kind of want to make it a little bit longer now. Right, that our desires change. And so as we see here in the scriptures, and this is a, obviously a very, very elementary kind of view of this, right, that in God's sovereignty, he has chosen Peter and called him out and revealed to him, I'm the God of the universe. I created you. I love you. And this is my son who I've laid in front of you. Okay, now, I said we were going to get to Peter. This is where we get to Peter, verse 18. Verse 18 is probably one of the most controversial passages in all of Scripture. There's an entire section of Christianity that's, that bases a good majority of their doctrine over verse 18. Okay, so let's read it. Look at verse 18 with me. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So here's the question. Who is the rock? I knew somebody was going to say that. How did I know it was going to be my buddy JR? Not Dwayne Johnson. For those of you guys that are familiar with that guy, not him. I knew it was going to be JR too because we grew up watching wrestling together. And then JR kept watching wrestling and I stopped. But <laughs> who, who is the rock in that passage? Okay. Now, the traditional Catholic view is that Peter is the rock, okay? And this is where they get their idea of papal continuance, right? The idea of, of needing a pope and having someone who is, who is the, the chief supreme leader. If you guys grew up Catholic and you don't know what I'm talking about right now, you should probably know a little bit about your, <laughs> your, your culture, your background. This is where the, this idea comes from, that the, the office of the pope, the first pope, according to Catholic history, was Peter, and that when Jesus makes this statement in, in Matthew 16, that he's talking about Peter kind of being the first pope of the first church after Jesus leaves. And so that the, the church needs to have that, kind of that office there to kind of continue the line of Peter and who's going to be that authority. Now, basically what they believe is that, G, that Jesus is promising, promising that Peter is first among equals and he will lead and then the popes will come after him. Now here's the problem with that particular viewpoint in this passage, and I, I hate, I feel like the last two weeks I've been really hard on the, on Catholic doctrine, but there's a reason why I'm Reformed and Protestant. So, let's start with this. Peter didn't lead the early church. <laughs> if you study church history, does anybody know who the first leader of the early church was in Jerusalem? It's James. Okay, so, so there's your first problem, right? If, if Peter is really this pope, right, why wasn't he the first leader? James, the brother of Jesus, was the, 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 the leader of the first church in Jerusalem and when it started spreading out. Okay, so there's your first problem with this. Okay, second one, I want you guys to notice this a little bit more closely with me because I think this is a, an even more important argument. Look at the language in verse 18 with me. I'm gonna read it for you. And I tell you, so he's talking to Peter, you are Peter. That's nice. He tells him who he is. Like, this is your name, right? Is that, I'm not sure you know who you are. You are Peter. Then look what happens. And on what? This rock, I will build my church. Everybody see what's happening there? He changes the subject of what's going on there. If, if he had continued the flow of the sentence, he would say, and I tell you this, you, Peter, on you, the rock, I will build my church. But he changes the language there and says in the Greek, right, on this rock, I will build my church. Differentiating in that exact sentence that they use to prove the, necess the necessity of a pope, right, nope. There is a differentiation between the subject of the rock and who Peter is in that same sentence. Okay, so I don't think the rock is Peter. One of the reasons I'm not Catholic, okay? Now, who, what is the rock then? Right, if it's not Peter, what is it? Okay, well, let's see. Common view, and the early church held this view up until about 700 AD, is that the rock was, in fact, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah. 
And so what they would say is upon Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior of the world for their sins, that the church would be built on that confession. And that Peter's name is even changed from Simon to Peter as the rock because the confession that he made was the first one and that on that confession would be the rock of the church. And so I, I don't have a ton of issue with this view. It makes sense and it answers the language issue while still being contextual and it could be right. But here's the other view that's kind of formed out of this and, and the reason why I, I think that the rock is actually Jesus himself and more than likely he was probably pointing to himself as he was saying this sentence to Peter. The context focuses on what in Matthew chapter 16? Now remember, most, the, the, commonly we read this and we focus on Peter in this passage, but the passage is actually about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Why is he here? Why is this prophet walking around here? Who is the son of man? What's going on here? The entire context of this, this dialogue in Matthew chapter 16 is centered around Jesus' discussion with Peter on who he is. He's the subject of the entire context of what's going on here. And so as they're sitting there talking, the, the context has come to light that, hey, Jesus is the Messiah. That's what we're trying to figure out here. And the confession is not important, as important as who the confession is about, which is that Jesus is who he said he was, the promised Messiah sent by the Father to rescue us from our sins. That the confession is simply a declaration of who actually does the saving. This is something that even some of you guys that come from the evangelical, maybe even Southern Baptist world, right? You grew up and you were told to pray a prayer and that prayer would save you, right? And you think you are saved because you prayed a prayer. Okay, I don't know what happened at the moment you prayed that prayer, but you are not saved because you prayed a prayer. You are saved because Jesus Christ died for your sins. Right? And there is a big difference between those two things. If you are saved because you prayed a prayer, you're saved because you did something. If you are saved because you have submitted and trusted to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and that you believe that he died and gave himself for your sins, he becomes the hero of the story, not you. Your prayer was just simply a response to something God had already done. And you see, you start moving again to where you're supposed to be moving, which is where Jesus is at the centerpiece and the, the centerfold of human history. That he is the most important person that has ever lived and walked on this earth. And so the context of these verses point to the importance of Jesus and who he is, not even about Peter or even Peter's declaration. Because Jesus is the rock. Now, let me give you one more reason why I think Jesus is the rock here. Okay. The, the word rock is used 12 times in the New Testament, excluding every time that they're actually talking about literal rocks, okay? Look at first, throw 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 up there for me, will you, Brent? Okay, this is, this is Paul. All right, look at what he says. He's talking about those who have come to faith, and Louis says, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was what? Christ. That even Paul himself, when using the language of rock and foundation, what does he say? The rock is Jesus. Not Dwayne Johnson, J.R. Jesus. And so, translate this back to verse 18, and here is the dialogue going on between Peter and Jesus. Right? Jesus is looking at Peter, and he's like, look, Peter, you get it. You are the rock you, you, you are, you know who I am. You know that I am actually the rock. You know that from your confession, you know what God is doing through me. And I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. By the way, that's actually kind of a foreshadow because what he's saying there, the gates of hell is where people, dead people went. Guess what happened? Jesus gets killed and guess what happens? Next week we celebrate it. He raises from the dead. Not even death can hold him back. That he raises from the dead and not even the gates of hell will prevail against him because of what the Father has chosen for him to do and his mission here on earth. So there you have it, the three views of what's going on there. Notice how they shouldn't be centered on Peter though. They should be centered on what God is doing. And I think this is where, this is where I kind of want to try to start trying to wrap us up today. Because what happens in the scripture over and over again is we look at these people in 
the context of these biblical narratives and we start getting more excited about them than we do about Jesus. And so, I mean, this is, I mean, I just said, there's an entire branch of Christianity that focuses on Peter as the first pope and creates entire doctrines based upon it. And they get more excited about Peter instead of the guy that Peter in this own, in this, in his, by his own declaration in this passage is worshiping. Now, here, let me give you one more example of why you're not supposed to be worshiping Peter. Right, look at the verses immediately after this conversation. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Okay, so Jesus is telling his disciples, this is why I came. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. He starts sharing that with his disciples. Immediately after Peter's made this declaration of believing that Jesus is the Messiah, so Peter gets it, and I'm using air quotes there, Peter gets it, and so Jesus starts revealing more to them about his mission and what he came to do. Look what happens. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, bold move, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Prove to me that maybe Peter doesn't really grasp it as much as he thinks he does, but it gives me great hope for myself. <laughs> right? Oh, you're the son of the living God, but you're wrong doesn't seem to flow in the same narrative, right? So he takes him aside and says, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus, but he, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Just as an aside, if this is your first pope, Maybe not as great as you thought he was. <laughs> right? Takes him aside and says, Satan. <laughs> that, would, that would even be a curse on somebody in our culture today. Right? Sa Satan, get away from me. Who do you think you are? What are you doing? You're trying to hinder the entire mission of why the Father has sent me in the first place. I came for the sole purpose of suffering and dying for your sins and raising from the dead. That is why I'm here. And you're trying to hinder that and prevent that from happening. Now, Jesus is trying to, with Peter here, kill the Jewish misconception of who the Messiah is supposed to be. He's, try he's trying to fix and correct it. Uh, th this idea that the Messiah was going to be some sort of political hero for Israel and kick Rome out. That's all that Israel was looking for at the time. And Jesus is like, look, the promise of the Messiah <laughs> is so much more than that. You guys need to, to maybe, you know, expand your view of God a little bit because he's a lot bigger than just whether Israel exists and Rome occupies Jerusalem or not. And so he's correcting this view. And so Peter afterwards, I love this because, because this should give you great hope, by the way, if you follow Jesus any particular amount of time. You inevitably fail like Peter does. And Jesus doesn't, and, you know, Jesus rebukes him, but he doesn't kick him out. He doesn't say, get away from me. I don't ever want to be around you anymore. Right, he, can, he corrects him and he continues to do ministry with Peter. And Peter does all sorts of things after this moment. We're not going to go into great length about them. But there's a moment at the, at the Last Supper where Jesus says that Peter's, you know, that, that Peter's going to deny him three times. And Peter's like, I'll die before I deny you. I'll die with you if I have to. And he's like, well, actually, before the, croc, the, the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And sure enough, in Matthew 26, that's exactly what Peter does. He denies that he knows who Jesus is three times. And the moment that the rooster crows, the, the, the narrative in Matthew says that Peter walks away weeping because he realizes what's, what's happened, that Jesus has once again prophesied and it's been fulfilled. And we see Peter as a hero in Matthew 16 and 10 chapters later, he's literally probably the worst of the disciples other than maybe Judas Right, from hero to zero pretty quickly. And here's, here's, the, here's the question I want to kind of leave us with this morning. In a culture like ours, where, where a lot of you guys in some ways grew up in a religious home, or in a home where you went to church, or it's something your family valued, right? how many of you guys can relate with Peter in the sense of that you've been told how important it is to live for God, to know who he is, to practice spiritual disciplines, to know the right answer, and then you find yourself failing, 
like Peter does, right? Should be everybody in this room, right, who's walked with the Lord for any season of time. And the question you're inevitably going to ask yourself, and I'm sure that this is the question that Peter struggled with as he walked away denying God three times, does God still love me? Right, because, because the reality is, and here's some of the, the weird things that I've faced since I've come to faith, right, when I, when, when, the, when God saved me in between my sophomore and junior years of college, I was a blank slate in many ways. I didn't know anything about God. I didn't even know half of what I was doing was actually considered sin in the Lord's eyes. Right? And so I, I, was just, I was just walking through life, doing my own thing. And then, you know, God got a hold of me and saved me. And so like half of what I was doing, I was like, I didn't, like someone would be like, dude, are, like, what are you doing there? I'm like, what do you mean? I had no idea that God kind of had a standard that was going to bring me more joy. And help me to enjoy life more and worship him more. And so inevitably, though, once I started learning that those things were sin, but I had created those patterns in my life, inevitably, I started beating myself up because I started seeing my sinfulness more and more. Right? And early on as a believer, I struggled with this idea of knowing how sinful I was, but instead of trusting and resting in the confession that I had made about knowing who Jesus was when I first became a believer, I was trusting in myself. And the more I trusted in myself and the more I failed, guess what? The more sad, lonely, confused, and depressed I became. It was this vicious cycle. It's like, I know that's a sin and I don't want to perform it anymore, and yet I continue to do it. And it was kind of this, this never-ending cycle of disappointment and being upset with myself. And Peter, who's made this confession and knows who Jesus is, right? And yet, as he's sitting there just the night before saying, I'd, I'd die for you, really the night of, he's, he's sitting there hours later denying that he even knows who Jesus is. I've never seen the man. I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't know who he is. Right, what a low point to have gotten to. There's no way he could have thought, God, God still loves me and knows me. And yet something would have still been in the back of his mind, knowing the things that Jesus had promised back in Matthew 16, that the Son of Man had to suffer at the hands of the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees, would be crucified and then raised again. Peter had been told that. Now, none of that had happened yet, but Peter had been told that. And as he's denied Jesus and knowing him three times, in the back of his mind, that would have been there. And as he's probably wrestling with this question, will God still love me? Go with me to Luke chapter 24. That's where we're going to finish this morning. Peter walks away, denying Jesus, probably at his lowest point, which is pretty impressive because he has some pretty low points in the scriptures. Being called Satan is a pretty low point. Look what happens in Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 8. And they remembered his words. And I should give you guys a little bit of context. The, the women have returned to Jesus' tomb. And as they get there, they find it empty. Okay, so this is the, the, the story of the resurrection. And they get to the tomb. And this is what it says. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to the rest. So the women went back and told the disciples who went to the tomb, he's not there. It's just like he had promised us all the way back in, in Matthew 16. He's not there. He said he would raise again on the third day, and he did. I, 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 I'm just as shocked as you are, but he's not, he is not there. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So the disciples are like, all right, ladies, you're a little crazy, right? It didn't happen, except for this. Look at this. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home, what? Marveling at what had happened. Okay. I know Luke does not go into a ton of detail, but here's what happens in that moment. Peter finally realizes fully what Christ came and did for him. Right? Instead of weeping that Jesus is gone, 
that his body's not there, he's rejoicing because here's what he knows. That when he walked with Jesus, Jesus had promised to him, I have come to die on the cross as a substitution for your sins and for others. Including the sin of trying to hinder me from getting to the cross in the first place. And no matter what you do, Peter, my Father in heaven has revealed to you who I am. And that love cannot be taken away from you. So as he walks to that tomb, where three days ago he denied the very existence of knowing Jesus in the first place, he steps into that tomb, and he looks, and he says, I get it. I fully get it now. This is why he came in the first place. Not just so that I could intellectually know the Son of Man. Not just so Peter could have some prominent place in the Israeli court with Jesus as the new king. But that the enemy Jesus came to defeat was not just Roman occupation. It was slavery to sin. That you and I, if you are a a, a professing follower of Jesus this morning... There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus for you. Nothing. Like, you you denying that you know who Jesus is, Peter did it. Right? You continuing to sin after you profess believing in him, Peter did it. Right? You continuously failing and not living up to the standard that you set or maybe even God sets, Peter did it. Name whatever sin, struggle, things things that you struggle with in your life, whatever it might be, that is the story of Peter. And he's not some Gentile who's clueless, who doesn't know anything about God. He grew up Jewish. He walked with Jesus for three years. And yet, in the midst of walking with him, he failed over and over again. And yet, as he stares at the empty tomb, he doesn't weep. He rejoices because that is what God has done for us. As the reason we are here this morning, I always love Easter time because we're going to have a few more people that we don't normally see next week pop into these doors and it's going to be exciting and we're going to be welcoming to them. We're going to give them a hug and invite them to come back again. But what we're celebrating next week is the time of year that our culture decides that's when we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Guys, at this church, we celebrate the resurrection every single day. Every day I wake up and I'm thankful that Jesus Christ died for my sin and rose again so that I might be reconciled to God. That that is the truth. And so as we leave here this morning, guys, leave encouraged. Leave excited about what God has purchased for you and his son. That you and I once were alienated from God because of our sin, because of our transgressions, from our because of our disbelief because of who we are in our hearts as sinners, that Christ died for that and exchanged with us his place for ours. That when Christ went to the cross, he took on all your sin, all your shame, past, present, and future. That he bore the weight of that and he satisfied the wrath of God for that. And then in that same moment, he gave you and I his righteous standing before the Father so that you and I might be adopted as sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's the good news of of why we're here. If Jesus didn't die and rise again, we have no reason to be here. But there's nothing as well attested to in the history of the world as what happened on Easter morning as we take communion, guys. Reflect on what God did for you in Christ. That Christ poured out his flesh and blood for you so that you might be forgiven. And don't wallow in your sin. Confess it, repent, and freely enjoy the forgiveness that you have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, you are good. Thank you for the life of Peter that we might look to him not as an example of someone to emulate, but as someone we can look at and worship the same God he worshiped. I want to worship Peter's God. I want to know that I'm forgiven and loved 
by the very God who created me. No matter what I've done. Lord, as we take communion this morning, we can reflect on the cost of what it took to purchase us, but then we can rejoice in the fact that you did it. Jesus, thank you. May we spend the rest of our time this morning worshiping you and making much of you. And may we leave here today excited about what you've done for us and sharing that with others. It's the greatest news in the world. Thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name.